Happy Easter, friends. We are grateful that you are joining us. This year, Easter looks a touch different than we expected. Matter of fact, if you had asked us all three months ago, as we were already beginning preparations and planning for this weekend, we would have never dreamed or expected that we would all be gathering in this way. Many of us have seen many of the festivities that we're accustomed to canceled or postponed, and, and I would say that's okay. Matter of fact, this year, I think the Lord is allowing us to focus on what really matters. What really matters to the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus. Matter of fact, that is the linchpin of the Christian faith. 1 Corinthians 15 would tell us that that is the hope of the believer. We are either people who are wise for what we know, or as Paul says to the church of Corinth, we are the most to be pitied. We are actually foolish for gathering this way if Jesus was not resurrected. Now, I can't think of many stories in the Bible that are more difficult to believe than the story of a person who was once dead and then to be found alive three days later. Perhaps maybe you could think of stories like the Red Sea or God providing manna for people out of heaven, or potentially maybe it's even the story that Jesus mentioned himself in Matthew chapter 12, verses 40 and 41, where he said that just as Jonah, the Old Testament prophet, was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so would the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Jesus obviously uh, said that the story of Jonah, the account of him being swallowed by a big fish, must have been true. For a lot of us watching, we might be skeptical of the, the story of the big fish or possibly even skeptical about Jesus and his resurrection. But with that in mind, I want to recall that story long ago of a story about a guy named Jonah. If you go to the Old Testament uh, you would find this, this little four-chapter book called Jonah, and it's a story about a prophet that God called to go to a particular people that were very evil and wicked. The account goes something like this. In Jonah 1, it says that Jonah, the son of Amittai, uh, was called to go to Nineveh. Now, we know, according to 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, that not only was Jonah the son of Amittai, but we also know that he was from the area of Nazareth, a little area called Gath-Hefer. He was called by God to go, according to Jonah chapter 1, to the Ninevites, the capital city of Assyria. But what Jonah does next is very interesting. Jonah goes and he takes his money and he pays to board a boat in the city of Joppa. And he heads the complete opposite direction of where God is asking him to go. We know from verse 3 in Jonah chapter 1 that he is running from the presence of the Lord. And so he's heading as far west as he could possibly go to the region and the town of Tarshish. Now, Jonah is running from the Lord simply uh, for reasons at this point we don't know. Maybe he's afraid of the people of Assyria because of how wicked they are or how vile they are. Either way, what we see clearly is his disobedience. And so as he is on the ship, we know that uh, from the following verses that a storm uh, happens upon the sea. It's one that is so vicious and so powerful that even the other men on the boat begin to be fearful of their lives. It says that the boat might even break in half because of the raging storm that comes against it. And so from what we see there is this incredible uh, picture of God judging Jonah's disobedience. The mariners on board are, are not sure of what's happening, and so they begin to cry out to their gods. They are pleading that their gods would do something in this moment to take the storm away. The problem is, is that their gods don't listen. 
probably because of what Paul writes to the church of Corinth in saying that their gods never existed in the first place. And so because their gods didn't exist and they didn't hear the prayers of these mariners, nothing happened. Until the captain of the boat summoned for the guy that was asleep in the inner chamber. His name was Jonah. As they uh, bring Jonah about, uh, they begin to ask him a handful of questions, but only after they had all cast lots and the lots fell upon Jonah. When they cast those lots, they asked Jonah, hey, where, where are you from? What is your occupation? What are you doing? And, and what have you done that this huge storm would come up against us? The mariners had already done everything they could possibly do. They had thrown stuff over the board uh, to try to lighten their load. And finally, they're looking at the man who's responsible for all of God's vengeance. And then Jonah replies, he says, I'm a Hebrew. I believe in the one true God, the one who created the land of the sea. He is bringing judgment against me because I'm running from the presence of the Lord. Something that he had already shared with them previously. Upon that, they thought they would take things into their own hands and they began to row against the storm, thinking that in their self-sufficiency that maybe if they all grabbed an oar and they went the opposite direction that they could prevail against it. The problem was the, the storm grew more powerful and it raged against these mariners and Jonah until finally Jonah says, listen, I know the answer. If you want the storm to cease, take me and throw me overboard. For, the, for that's what the Lord would, would have you do. And at that, they cry out to the one true God, to Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth, the one who created everything we see and know. And they ask God to, to not uh, hold them responsible. They say, look, we don't want to throw this man over and his innocent blood be on our hands. But then they take him and they throw him overboard. And the the sea grows, grows calm. And at that, God appoints a big fish to come and swallow Jonah. It's in chapter 2 that we would see that God uses the belly of a big fish to teach Jonah a handful of lessons. The first lesson he would teach them is about his self-sufficiency. Uh, Jonah had depended upon his own strength and he had run from the presence of the Lord. And it was there in the belly of the fish that God would teach him that you cannot outrun God. Friends, I don't know about where you are in this moment, but are you trying to outrun God? Have you been trying to handle your own life and do things on your own? And maybe in this moment, in this present time, in our circumstance, the Lord wants you to listen to Him. He, he wants you to learn from Him like Jonah did. Here's something else that Jonah learned, that even in the depths of the sea, even at the very lowest of lows, that God's presence was still there. And as he cried out to God, God heard him in his distress. He sensed God's nearness, even in the time of consequences. It was there that God would teach him that he could spare anyone of their depravity, that there were useless and vain idols in the world, and that none of them should be pursued. And that is when Jonah makes the declaration about who God is and says, God, you are indeed mankind's salvation. It is that prayer that begins to, to, to posture Jonah's heart towards the presence of the Lord and what God desires to do in his life. And friends, that's why we gather this morning is to simply posture our lives before the Lord. And at that, it said that God then spoke to the fish and the fish spit Jonah up onto dry land after being in the heart of the fish for three days and three nights. 
We don't know how long uh, would go on before uh, the word of the Lord would come to Jonah a second time. But when we get to Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, we know that God spoke to Jonah again. And he said, Jonah, I want you to do as I first asked. I want you to go to the capital city of Assyria, to the Ninevites, and I want you to encourage them to follow me. And at that, Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 3 of Jonah chapter 3. It says that Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. It was three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and then he called out. So here it is. He goes to Nineveh. He walks into a portion of Nineveh, uh, not all the way, not even to the middle of it, we would presume. Uh, And what he does is he simply then says eight words. He calls out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. At that, he drops the mic and he turns and he heads the other direction. He said all that he's going to say according to to the scripture. And you might ask yourself the question, well, Is that a powerful enough sermonette? I mean, did he say enough? Were there enough clever jokes? Did he have enough good illustrations? And all we know here is that he said eight words, and then what happens next is an amazing thing. In verse 5, it says, And all the people of Nineveh believed God. Now, I don't know about you, but this is a pastor's dream. Eight words, and the people begin to believe God? It says they called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. You would see that even word would travel. In verse 6, it says that it, the word of the Lord reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. And then he issues a proclamation, and he published it throughout Nineveh. And this is what it said. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So catch this. Jonah says eight words, drops the mic, turns and walks out of the city, and then a revival begins to take place throughout the land. Even the king of Nineveh issues the decree and says, hey, listen, the one true God that he has spoken about has called us to repent. So, hey, let's all turn from our evil ways. Let's cry out to God. And who knows, maybe, maybe the God of heaven and earth, maybe the God of Israel will spare us of our lives. Maybe, indeed, we will not face the consequences that are coming to us. And then it says in verse 10 that when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Friends, that is the story of amazing grace. And as we think about that, we might think, well, what was the prophet Jonah thinking? If if it's me and I'm a pastor and I say eight words and an entire city begins to repent, I'm high-fiving people. I'm celebrating. I mean, even as I think about this moment together, I've been praying for days that God would use the message to reach people for the cause of the gospel, the good news. And I would high-five others if just one person repented. And yet here it is, an entire city responds to the good news of God. And Jones' response is astonishing. To be really honest, it's baffling to think about. In Jonah chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, 
it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Matter of fact, what we see next is the very reason that Jonah didn't follow God's instructions in the first place. In verse 2, it says that he prayed to the Lord and he said these things. O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, that you were slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. God, I knew what you were going to do. I knew that if the people of Assyria, these wicked, vile, detestable people, these adulterous, slanderous, wicked, nasty people, if they repented, if they sought your forgiveness, God, I knew your character was to relent on judgment. And I didn't like that. And I didn't want that. And so I went the other direction. In verse 3 of Jonah 4, it says, Therefore now, O Lord, just take my life from me. For it's better for me to die than it is to live. Jonah was so angry with God that he offered forgiveness and grace that he wanted to die. He goes, Lord, anything, just take my life. I can't stand these people, these enemies of mine you've forgiven, and I want no part of it. And then the Lord asked him, do you do well to be angry? And the scripture tells us that then Jonah, as he continues to walk out of the city, would walk out to the eastern part of the city. He would sit on the hill. He would make himself some sort of booth to sit under that would give him shade from the scorching heat and the eastern wind. And what we would know is that God would, in his provision for Jonah, would create a plant, a gourd that would grow up and cover him with shade. And at the first time in the entire book, in Jonah chapter 4, Jonah is exceedingly happy because of God's provision. Not the provision for sinners, but the provision for this man named Jonah who was disobedient to God in many ways throughout the journey. The gourd or the plant didn't last long, though. Uh, matter of fact, we know that it would come in one evening and it would go in one evening. And so the dawn of the next day, uh, this plant was gone. And Jonah is exceedingly angry again. And he just says, Lord, as I face this scorching wind, as I have this... Uh, heat upon me. Would you just take my life? I want to die. And then the Lord asked him the question, do you do angry to be well for the Lord, uh, for the plant? And he goes, yes, Lord, I do. Uh, I'm, I'm upset about the plant. Would you just kill me? Just take my life? And he says it again. And then the Lord says these words in verse 10 of Jonah 4. He says, and the Lord said, you pity a plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? What the Lord says is, he goes, Jonah, what you're upset about are things that are out of your control. You didn't control a plant in either way. You don't, you don't plant it. Uh, you don't make it grow. You didn't do anything, and you're upset about it. If you're concerned about a plant, you're telling me that the God of heaven and earth shouldn't be concerned about 120,000 people who don't know truth or right from wrong? And then the book ends. And I don't know about you, but it's probably the, the worst ending in all of our Bible, if I could say so myself. But the ending, if it was a movie, is setting itself up for a sequel. And, and there is a sequel, friends, and that's what I want to tell you about next. See, the sequel is is what's so incredible. And, and it's not Jaws. It, it's not something you've already seen before, probably. But the sequel is found in who Jonah is an imitation of. But he's not a good imitation, but his name is Jesus. Matter of fact, if you look at Jonah, what you're going to see is a handful of things about him that you could also see in Jesus. But Jesus is actually a true and better Jonah. 
Think about it in this. In Jonah chapter 1, we know that Jonah paid a boat fare to head in the opposite direction of God. He was disobedient and he ran from God's presence and calling. But that's not true of our our Savior Jesus, is it? Jesus was perfectly obedient to the Father and he paid a price of coming to the earth to die on behalf of sinners. He was crucified on a sinner's cross so that we might have a new life in Christ. So what you see is is Jonah uh, was disobedient in every way and Jesus was perfectly obedient in every way. You might even recall the words of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, may there be any other way that this cup could pass from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus, in the agony of that moment, said that there were sweat uh, droplets of blood that came from his head. And the agony was not just in the, the matter of the crucifixion or the torture that would take place, although that was incredibly horrific. The most horrific thing would be that an innocent and blameless man, the Savior, the one who is perfect in every way, would take on the chastisement of sinners, that he would bear the brunt of all sin on his shoulders. And can you imagine someone that was perfectly in light taking on such darkness? That is what Jesus did in his obedience. The second thing that we see is that Jonah would spend uh, his time in the belly of a great fish. Three days and three nights there, Jesus would also mention himself in Matthew chapter 12 that he would do something similar. Jonah spends the time in the great fish because of his disobedience, but Jesus goes because of his obedience. And Jonah does it because of his own sin and rebellion. And Jesus goes to the heart of the earth because of our sin and rebellion. See, Jesus overcomes death, sin, and the grave, and he goes to the very lowest of lows in order to be resurrected on the third day. Jonah received the just consequence for his sin. And Jesus received the just consequence for our sins. My, my friends, gathering, Jesus is a better Jonah. The third thing that you would see in Jonah's life is that he became angry. What was he angry for? He was angry because, it, uh, because of people he didn't like were offered forgiveness. See, Jonah became angry because God showed grace towards repentant sinners. But see, Jesus is different. Jesus modeled grace towards repentant sinners. See, here's what you need to know. Jonah hated his enemies, but Jesus loved them. Matter of fact, the scriptures say that we were once alienated and estranged from God. We were enemies of God ourselves because of our sin problem, but God loved us and he demonstrated that love for us in this, that Jesus died for us. That's what Romans 5, 8 tells us. See, Jesus loved you so much that he was willing to lay his life down for you, friend. What great news. See, Jonah was the picture of things that we don't want to be. And Jesus is the greater Jonah. He shows us grace and mercy. And he is perfectly obedient in ways that Jonah never was. As I think about this, I think about a comparison in the New Testament. A story that was oftentimes referred to in our Bible as the prodigal son. It's tucked in Luke chapter 15, and it's there with actually a couple of other stories. The first one begins with the parable of the lost sheep. The next one's a parable of the lost coin, and which you see when they're found, there's a great celebration that takes place. And then as you get to verse 11, all the way through verses 32, it tells you of another story. A story about a son who would go to his father, and he said, Father, if you don't mind, I would like my share of my inheritance. 
a very insulting thing in the Jewish tradition would be for a son before his father's death to go and say, I would like what's rightfully mine. And what we know is that this father would actually give in to his son's request. He would give his son his share of the inheritance. And this young son, in his rebellious state, would go and squander everything that he had. In his squandering state, a famine would also come into the land. And this young boy found himself in a predicament. The odds that had come against him in this famine meant that he had taken a job with a farmer in a local area that he was, found himself in. He had gotten to such a lowly state that even he, as he was feeding the pigs on the farm, came to a place where the best food he could get was what they were eating. It was in this moment that he recalled that even his father's servants back home had it better than he had. And so at once he decided that he was going to go home to his father, the one that he had taken advantage of, the one that he had insulted, and he was going to plead for forgiveness, not asking to be called his son, but be, being asked to be made one of his servants. And so with that, he grabbed what little belongings he had and he headed for the homeland. If you can imagine, he was, as he was heading home, he probably recited the line more times than he could count. Father, please forgive me. I know I don't be, I'm not deserving to be called your son, but if you would just make me one of your servants, I would love to work for you. And he probably practiced that line hundreds of times on his way home. But it says that as he approached the home, his father must have been watching for his son. And when seeing him a long way off, this Jewish man did something that Jews never do. He took off running. He grabbed his cloak and his tunic. He hiked it up and he sprinted for his son. Why? Because this rebellious son that was in darkness has found the light. This son that was once far off is now being brought home. And with that, he greeted his son. And he said, son, it is so good to see you. He would hear nothing of what his son had to say because his son was now home. With that, he called all of his servants, asked them to kill a fatted calf, to get a robe and place on it, to get a ring and, and put it on his finger. He was going to promote his son because he was so excited that he had left his rebellious state and he had found goodness in the presence of his father. Meanwhile, as everyone else is gathering to throw a party for this son who had squandered all of his father's possessions, they summoned for the older son because he had heard everything that was going on anyway. And so here it was that the commotion had aroused the older son, the one who had been perfectly obedient in every way, who had never asked for his father's provision early, the one who had never been disobedient. He comes to the father. The father goes out and greets him. He says, hey, son, come in for your younger brother. The rebellious one has come home. Come in and let's celebrate. And at once, the older brother was indignant to his father. And he said these words, father, no way. Your, your younger son has squandered all of your possessions. And he's done it on prostitution and rebellious living. Why would I come in and celebrate that? I mean, you have killed a fattened calf for him. I've been perfectly obedient and you've never done as much as kill a goat for me. I don't understand, Father. And at that, the father would say, listen, we should celebrate this, this younger brother of yours, the one who was once far off. He was blind, but now he sees he was in darkness, and now he has been found. But that's not how the older brother would see it. Matter of fact, in this story, we see the character of, of Jonah in the story. 
If you think about it real quickly, the Ninevites were the younger brothers, the rebellious, wicked ones. If you think back, Jonah is like the older brother, trying to be perfect in his obedience to God, yet hating his enemies. And then there was one in the story that represents God, and that's the father, the one who wants to lavish his love on everyone. Those who believe they're perfectly obedient and don't see any of the error of their ways, and also those who believe that because of their sin, they are too far gone. Here's what I would tell you, friends, that no matter where you are or what you've done, no matter how righteous you think you are, no matter how rebellious or how much you've squandered in your life, God loves you and he has a desire to reach you with the good news of the gospel. Matter of fact, we know that when just one lost sinner repents, that all of heaven rejoices. That's what it says in Luke chapter 15, verse 7. It just simply says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Friends, here's what I would tell you. is that we are sitting here today and we're thinking about these stories. And I just want to bring up the fact that God loved the Ninevite. This wicked, vile, detestable nation. The one that had become an enemy to Israel many times. They were a foe in every right. God still loved them, and he still desired to see mercy upon them. That even as their evil came up before the Lord, the Lord wanted to give them a chance to repent and acknowledge the God of heaven and earth. And friends, that's what God's been doing ever since. See, you may think that, well, what you've done is, is too big of a mistake, or the mistakes that you've made put you in a place where you can't know God yourself. But let me ask you a question. Are you worse than the Ninevite? I mean, are you worse than some of the other people in the Bible that God has forgiven? If you were to think about the Ninevite, I don't know that there's a city even in modern day time that would compare. Yeah, we can think of places like Vegas or New Orleans or perhaps other places across the world. But this people, the Ninevites, were wicked and vile. They were murderers, adulterers, prostitutes. They had pagan gods and their lives were in ruin. So much God was going to destroy the city unless they repented. And here's what I would tell you. That is true for all of us. Matter of fact, the scriptures would tell us that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. That there is not one righteous, Romans 3.10. Not not one person comes to the place where we could be what God desires us to be. But isn't there good news? Yeah, let me share it with you real quickly. See, no matter where you sit in this moment, God desires to have a relationship with you. And the relationship with God is fairly simple. It does require a handful of things from each of us, but this is what it looks like. Number one is that you would acknowledge the error of your way, that you would just admit, acknowledge that you are indeed a sinner. Friends, I know that we might struggle with that in some ways. Others of us would not struggle at all because we know that we are wicked and vile and we know that our hearts are deceitful because that's what the scripture says. But it doesn't matter if you've sinned multiple times or if you're as bad as the Ninevites. The reality is, is that you and I are not holy like God. And our problem is not like that of of looking to other people. Our problem is, is that as when we look at God, we don't measure up. And because of that, we need to admit that to God. We acknowledge that. Then we begin to confess to God that we need a perfect substitute. That if we can't work our way to God by good works or going to church or giving to others or helping people in this time of need, that there must be a better way. And the better way is that God has worked himself down to us. And he did it through the person of Jesus. 
Matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, we know that he who knew no sin, that's Jesus, he willingly became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. See, God is willing to transfer something for us. What he's saying is if you'll acknowledge that you're a sinner and you'll trust me to take that sin on my son's shoulders, then I'll give you a new life in Christ. And that's what God desires to do. But what does it require? It requires you acknowledging before God that you can't work your way to heaven, but that God, being rich in mercy, lavished his love upon us by working his way to us through the person of Jesus Christ. Then the next step becomes, well, what do I do with that? And here's what Jesus would say. He would say, follow me. Trust me with all of your life. Matter of fact, that's what Jesus would say in the Gospel of Luke, or perhaps even in this verse of Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. He would say, hey, listen, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow me. So what he's saying is, is, hey, no longer be the God of your own life. Give up control and trust me. Follow me with your will and your way. See, friends, that's what this message is about. There's a heavenly Father who loves you and cares for you. Many of us in our self-righteousness have tried to be good for God, gone to church, done all the right things, and we still miss the mark. We're like Jonah or we're like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. But many of us probably relate more to the younger brother. We've done things that don't honor the Lord. We've squandered our life. We've made lots of poor decisions. And even in this moment, we're living in sin and we know it. And what God is saying is, is come home. Son, daughter, come home. You don't have to be far from me. And so would you just believe in me? Would you confess through your mouth, believe in your heart? Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, and would you trust me with your will and your way? I want to take you out of darkness and bring you into the marvelous light of Christ. I want to make you a chosen people. I want to make you my heirs, my possessions. I want to make you children of God. You don't have to be an enemy of God. You're the judgment of God doesn't have to prevail against you. You can experience His grace. And friends, wherever you are in this moment, I invite you to do that. Here in the next couple of moments, here's what I encourage you to do. If you've experienced the grace of God in your life, I want you now to begin praying for others across the world that are joining us in this moment. Be praying that maybe their eyes will be open and that the eyes of their hearts, as it says in Ephesians 1, would be open to the truth of the Scriptures. Friends, if you're joining us in this moment and you go, I want to follow God, I believe in Him, I acknowledge I'm a sinner, then in this moment, I invite you to have a conversation with the God of heaven and earth. If He could hear Jonah in the belly of a great fish in the very depth of the sea, He can hear you right where you are. And so I encourage you to have some time communing with God, asking Him to forgive you of your sin, to, uh, to take the sin upon his shoulders, that everything that you've done, ask him to take it from you and trust him with your will and your way. And then friends, after that, a couple of minutes, we'll get back together. And so take a few moments now. If you've never sought to follow God with your life, I pray that you'll do that now.
Friends, thank you for taking time to spend a few moments seeking the Lord. Today, there's several of you that have invited Jesus to be the Lord of your life. Like you've trusted him to take your sin, and now you're saying, will you help me follow you, God? And we know that God's spirit enables us to do what's right. And we know that upon seeking God, that he enables us to have the spirit of God in our life. But friends, there's some other next steps. The first thing we want you to do is let us know of the decision that you've made. And so if you don't mind, reach out to us through Facebook Messenger, or you can email us at pastoraloffice at stonepointchurch.com, or you can let us know even at live.stonepointchurch.com. Wherever it is that you're joining us in this moment, let us know so that we can begin to help you take your next steps. Friends, we love you. Easter is not just about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, but it's about the forgiveness and the the offering of sin that he made on our behalf. Friends, we should thank him. And so as we gather in whatever way we do as the day goes on, don't let us forget the price that was paid for us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the grace that you've shown us. You have been kind and merciful to sinners. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And apart from you, Lord, I am nothing. But God, thank you that many years ago, I was able to trust my life to you, that my will and my way became a a part of the story of God, that you reconciled me and my indifferences, and you brought me into the family of God. You forgave me, and you made me your child. Thank you. And I pray, Lord, that as we go throughout this day, that would be the thing that we continually thank you for, that Jesus died was buried and rose again on the third day to overcome sin, death, and the grave. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.